I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. A CIA officer gets tasked with infiltrating a group of hackers in Europe. The operation goes south and the officer is prosecuted for conducting illegal surveillance of journalists. He goes to jail for a year, and when he gets out, he's determined to get revenge against the CIA officials who hung him out to dry and the hackers who set him up. That's the plot of a new novel, Paladin, by the veteran Washington Post columnist David Ignatius, a journalist with unusually impeccable sources inside the U.S. intelligence community. We'll talk to Ignatius about his new book, as well as his reporting on the Michael Flynn case and the origins of COVID-19 on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, I got to say, David Ignatius is uh, an amazing guy. I uh, first met him many decades ago when he was an editor at the Washington Post, and I was a young reporter there. But aside from um, churning out these uh, incredibly insightful columns about the U.S. intelligence community, he also keeps churning out these novels that really enrich our understanding about how the CIA and other intelligence agencies work. And uh, Paladin is certainly well in that tradition. Absolutely. Ignatius is one of those kind of rare birds in Washington. Columnists often get dismissed as pundits. That is the last thing that David Ignatius is. I mean, he's got super valuable insights into Washington, uh, into how things really work, what's really going on in this city. But the thing about Ignatius as a columnist that's so impressive is that he is always reporting, and his columns are chock full of original reporting, and he breaks big stories. And, you know, we're going to talk about the Flynn case, which he pretty much broke that story, drove that story. <laughs> he kind of drove put the story. whole thing in play. Yeah. 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 But, you know, in a, in a way, it's true with his novels as well. I've read, read a bunch of them, and what's unique about them is he writes with a kind of authority and really deep knowledge of the intelligence community and inner workings of the Washington National Security Bureaucracy in a way that I think in some ways there's like more truth in the novels than there is in most newspaper stories that kind of gets to the essence of what really is going on and a kind of verisimilitude. Oh, that's a big word for skullduggery. Kind of a verisimilitude that really makes the fiction that he writes incredibly um, immediate and believable. So I'm psyched to talk to Ignatius about uh, Paladin and about all the other skullduggery that's going on in Washington. So on one side of the spectrum, we have Ignatius and his deep, enriched understanding of the way the intelligence community works. And at the other end of the spectrum, we have President Trump. 
perhaps uh, sort of the opposite in uh, understanding what um, CIA and the FBI and the other uh, agencies of the deep state really do and uh, what kind of work they do. But certainly we have our Trumpian specialist on the line with us, I understand. Mr. Hunter Walker. Hunter, are you with us? Yeah, and let me, let me just say, I miss you guys. <laughs> well, it's been so long since we've all been able to get together in the real world. Well, we can virtually get together as we are doing right now. Yeah, but that's not the same as getting like a bear hug from Mike Isikoff, you know? <laughs> it's just not the same thing. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm not really a bear hug kind of guy. But hey, um, Hunter, we wanted to talk to you before we get to Ignatius just because of this sort of mind-blowing stories we're hearing out of the White House about top aides having to self-quarantine because COVID has invaded the White House. Yeah, you know, I, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm not that surprised by this. And in part, because when I say I can't get together with you guys, I can't see you guys physically, I have been able to physically see President Trump. Just the week before last, I was one of a group of reporters that was brought right into the Oval Office. Um, We were not required to wear masks. We were not given tests. And that occurred multiple days the week before last. That also occurred last week because it's standard practice for the press pool not to be tested even when we're brought in the room with the president. And that's just one of many ways that, you know, social distancing, the president's own social distancing guidelines had not been followed at the White House. Um, I did a story at the start of last week before these cases broke, noting that the White House was regularly hosting these large events where there were untested people, unmasked people, some of whom in the room with the president. And, you know, medical experts, uh, Kavita Patel, who's contributing to Yahoo's coronavirus coverage, was telling me that this is not a good practice for any workplace, but also particularly out of step with, you know, she likened it to a hospital and said on on a critical floor where you have people performing critical functions, you want to have the highest standard, including testing multiple times a day, right? And the White House is certainly critical. You have the president, you have Uh, the vice president, all the people, including the medical experts and the people working on our vaccine effort who are really in charge of the response here, could not be more critical to helping the country recover. And, you know, we found out once once these cases emerged at the White House that they weren't even testing daily. They were actually testing weekly. So they've now, you know, gotten it together a little bit. They say they're testing daily, although, you know, Hunter, who how many people who do we know or how many people do we know who work at the White House who have tested positive? So, you know, we know that Katie Miller, the wife of Stephen Miller, one of the president's closest advisors, uh, she tested positive. She's the vice president's press secretary, also a White House valet. And this is extremely interesting because this person was is a member of the military who was reportedly involved in, you know, helping the president with his meals and his clothes. So really close contact. You know, this person tested positive. John Winter and I uh, broke the story for Yahoo uh, last week that there are 11 active cases as of last week in the Secret Service, many more people in monitoring or quarantine. We don't know how many of those Secret Service agents were on the White House complex. And then within the press, uh, within the White House press corps, there's been a couple suspected cases, including my own. Right. So, uh, you know, it's really stunning to see the president get up in the Rose Garden this very afternoon. And he said there's been just one case at the White House. And that's that's totally untrue. There's been, you know, at least 
two fully confirmed cases and, and likely. So, Hunter, you've actually kind of been ahead of the curve on this story. You just mentioned the story about the Secret Service that you and Jana broke. Before that, you did a piece about how the White House uh, did not seem to be kind of practicing the same kinds of safety guidelines as the t- their task force had been asking the country to follow. Not as much, not all that much social distancing, wearing of masks, uh, you know, temperature taking. I wonder, what do you think is at the root of that kind of reluctance? I will note, however, that today, for the first time, I think the White House did essentially mandate that people in the White House wear masks. But before that, you didn't see a lot of people in masks. The president, we've never seen him uh, wearing a, a mask. So what I- what is that about? <laughs> well, you know, there's a lot to unpack here. But first off, let me just, you know, step back for a second. Obviously, you know, in my conversations with medical experts, when they've said we need more stringent security measures at the White House against coronavirus, on one level, they're talking about protecting these VIPs who are involved in critical work. But on the other level, they're also talking about PR, public relations. And as we're trying to get the country to um, adhere to these guidelines and really to you know, change their entire lifestyle, the White House should be at the forefront of modeling best practices. And, and they just are not. You know, your question is a very, very good one. I, I obviously can only speculate. I, I think I've said on this program many times I would never try to get into President Trump's head or purport to understand his logic. But, you know, we have seen a pretty stark partisan divide in response to coronavirus with, you know, Republican governors and Republican officials and even President Trump sort of, you know, in, in his tweets about liberating states, erring on the side of reopening and Democrats, you know, focusing on locking down social distancing and taking a more aggressive response to this. I think, you know, on one level, economists really serious economists are saying we need to measure the damaging economic effects of reopening and weigh that against the deaths that would be caused by opening more. And I think, you know, Republicans traditionally, they do sort of take that more uh, economically minded approach. And I think, you know, they are going with the opening side of things. But I also think President Trump, what he talks about is often such a window into where he feels vulnerable. Right. And when you see him standing in the Rose Garden today, surrounded by these two signs, we're leading the way in testing. My read on that is his eye is always on the coming campaign and the election. And he thinks he's vulnerable to the problems that have occurred with America's testing rollout. I also think this is a president who repeatedly said the best argument for keeping him was the economy. He's now saying we had the greatest ever and coronavirus killed it. So he you know, naturally would be more on this reopening side because he wants the economy booming again. That is the central I, case yeah. for his reelection. But I, I think there's also a kind of cultural and, and ideological dimension to this. And I think, you know, we are seeing the kind of culture wars play out in this coronavirus crisis. And so a couple of things, you know, a lot of us remember seeing Matt Gates, the Trumpian congressman from Florida, who at the outset of all of this was like on the House floor wearing a, you know, like looks like a World War One era gas mask, uh, widely believed to have been mocking the wearing of masks. Our colleague Alex Nazarian tweeted a headline from The Federalist, the president of the United States should not wear a mask. Then it says, President Trump needs to exhibit strength and leadership in this crisis. He can't do that from behind the mask. But it is this idea 
that wearing a mask or taking these kinds of precautions is is kind of wimpy. I mean, people used to talk about the Republican Party and the Democratic Party as being the daddy party and the mommy party, the Republicans being the daddy party because they were tough on national security, tough on crime, all of those issues. And I think like there is an element of that in these attitudes about mask wearing. Isakoff, you have thoughts about that? I mean, look, on mask wearing, you're probably right. I think Trump doesn't want to wear a mask because, you know, he wants he wants as much face time with everybody he could get. Well, and, well, uh, and he is he is very to, image uh, conscious and he yeah, probably he's totally probably image doesn't, conscious. Doesn't but I do to, want to push yeah. back a little bit on the idea that those who want to move towards reopening that it's just about corporate profits or um, the stock market. I mean, there is real suffering going on as a result of the economic shutdown. And as we saw just the other day, last week in our conversation with those Amazon whistleblowers, the people suffering are the least able to weather the storm, the lowest paid workers in those warehouses who don't even have health insurance, who don't get paid sick leave. Those are the people that have to continue to show up from work. Those are the people who are suffering. The corporate executives and the uh, tech, the, the techies in Seattle can work at home. They get paid. I, so there's to all the Democrats who have talked for years about the inequities in our society and in our economy, those inequities are only being exacerbated by what's going on right now with the economic shutdown. So wanting to move people to get back to work is not about corporate profits. It's about just the health and welfare of our citizens, including most of all, our least fortunate citizens. I think that's a, that's a really, really important point, Mike. But I also think that, you know, largely through this, you know, partisan universe that we operate in, we've kind of ended up with this false dichotomy in the American discussion where it's either being careful about coronavirus and minimizing deaths or reopening, right? And what we've seen in some other countries is, you know, Canada and the UK both have uh, schemes involving grants and other things where 75 to 80 percent of people's wages are being covered, right? And we are so unable really to have or, or predisposed against having this conversation about sort of more welfare and benefits that it's becoming open or closed. It's not becoming stay closed while providing, making up for people's lost wages. And certainly that's not the conversation Republicans want to be having. Right, because ultimately these these two things are inextricably linked. I mean, if we are not prepared for a massive resurgence of this virus, you know, in the fall, let's say, that is going to have, you know, huge economic consequences for uh, for the for the country, and so you know you're right. It's not it's not a zero sum game. It's not one or the other. So, Hunter, we are recording this uh, just uh, half an hour or so after the president ended his most recent press conference, where he talked about uh, testing. He talked about a whole bunch of other things. He talked about his uh, transition, America's transition to greatness, which was a phrase I had not heard from him before. Tell us a little bit about uh, the uh, highlights from the, the latest uh, press conference of the president. 
Yeah, he has, you know, tried to brand the reopening in a very Trumpian fashion as the transition to greatness. He also, as I alluded to before, was surrounded by these giant signs that said, we are leading the world in testing. Um, You know, I do think the White House has legitimate positives to point to about um, our stepped up testing and the performance of our testing. But at the same time, there's a lot of questions that come up, and they really are playing fast and loose with the facts. When the president says that we have done more testing than any other country. Obviously, we're one of the biggest, biggest countries in the world with a population of over 320 million people. Per capita, there are other countries that have done more testing than us. One of those countries up until April was South Korea. And, you know, the White House initially took a lot of flack because South Korea was held up as this model response. Uh, they had a much lower infection rate than us. They were doing more testing and their population is more Uh, much more dense than ours. So they, you know, there was no reason that they should have had a lower infection rate. We have now in April passed them in per capita testing. But, you know, part of the reason for that is that, you know, they actually, in part due to their very robust initial response, have seen progress with coronavirus and were able to ramp down their testing. At the same time, and this goes to your point that you just made, Dan, the, um, South Korea has started to reopen and we're seeing new outbreaks there. So they are also a cautionary tale. The other thing that the president was focusing on a lot in this press conference was just just sort of talking about how um, he does want the economy to kind of get back on its feet, how he's very, very, very confident in that. And then, of course, as there is with any Trump press conference, there was a little bit of sparring with the press. There was um, a little bit of news today. He talked about uh, the shooting in Georgia of Ahmaud Arbery. He said he spoke to Tim Scott who's the only black Republican senator to discuss it. And he also talked about Obamagate, which is this phrase he tweeted over the weekend after some of the Flynn revelations. And I thought it was really interesting because the president has repeatedly said that, you know, Obama and others committed crimes and and it's like nothing we've ever seen and we would see what it is. And Phil Rucker from the Washington Post asked him very pointedly, what is this crime that President Obama committed? And President Trump really couldn't answer that. He said, you know, you can read about it in any newspaper except yours. Referring to- <laughs> well, clearly this was this was uh, triggered by uh, Obama's comments uh, late Friday, which we did break, having gotten a copy of the tape. That's where he called the uh, Flynn uh, case a uh, threat to the rule of law and the Trump administration's response to COVID-19 as a uh, absolute chaotic disaster. And Trump, this is what's so amazing. Between late Saturday night and early Sunday morning, Trump tweeted or retweeted more than 50 times about the investigations by the FBI and the House Intelligence Committee into his campaign's ties to Russia. So here we are in the middle of this pandemic, mass human suffering, more than we've now reached more than 80,000 deaths. And the guy is just obsessed with the Russia probe. What do you mean? It's, he's multitasking. You know, a president <laughs> has to do a lot of things. You yeah. know, uh, you know, yeah. when you're when you're tweeting, you have to be able to, you know, tweet on multiple storylines. So that's, you know, I mean, that's what Trump does. I, I, uh, I, I think I mean, that, I think you know, I think triggered uh, triggered was exactly the right word as a cop. And I think he was triggered by the Obama audio that we published. You know, th- these were the sharpest comments I think that Obama has made about Trump since Trump was elected. And, you know, I, it, there's no as great as our reporting was. I think there's no 
question really in my mind that Obama probably knew that uh, that audio might get out. After all, there were like 3,000 members of the Obama Alumni Association on that call, so someone was going to leak it. Uh, I think uh, Obama knew what he was doing. I think it's the beginning of his kind of more aggressive efforts to help his former vice president and friend Joe Biden. And I think he's entered the fray, and I think that's going to be interesting. And Trump said, one of Trump's tweets, uh, he said Obama was responsible for the biggest political crime in American history by far, exclamation point. (laughs) Right. And again, again, today, we didn't see what that crime was. But, you know, it, it goes back to what I was saying to you guys, that I think so often what we see Trump talking about is a window into his insecurities. And, you know, these these three big themes, I think, show areas where he may be feeling a little bit vulnerable, particularly with the campaign going. One is, again, you know, all of the questions about um, his 2016 campaign and their ties to Russia. Another is America's performance on testing and, you know, sort of initially warding off the coronavirus, which we clearly did not do. And then also now with the virus raging through the White House, he's, he's trying to saying it's only one person and sort of falsely downplay it there. And of course, you know, for God, six or seven years now, he's always had this preoccupation with Obama. So you, you add Obama into that mix, and it just, you know, it, it's uh, fuel yeah. on the fire. I got to ask you, Hunter, just, I mean, before we before we leave, there was a kind of a bizarre end to this press conference. In some ways, it was very Trumpian. Um, he got angry, and he basically, you know, just, like, walked off the stage. But a a reporter for CBS News, an Asian American reporter for CBS News, it seemed to me a you know legitimate question. Uh, Trump was going on in the press conference about how we have you know more testing than anywhere anywhere in the world. He's been saying that for you know weeks and weeks now, and uh, so she just said, "Look, why does that? You keep saying that. Why does that really matter? Is are we in some kind of a global competition?" And uh, Trump got all huffy and he looked at her and he said. Why don't you just ask China that question? <laughs> just ask China. And she's, she was like, well, wh- why are you asking, why are you saying, directing that to me? Is it because, you know, I'm Chinese American? And he said, just ask China. What did you make of that? So, God. <laughs> I mean, I know you, you can't read, I know you can't read his mind, but it was just so strange. I, I will tell you something. I think that, you know, um, we they were talking earlier in the press conference about sort of you know, reports that China has hackers trying to, you know, steal vaccine secrets from the U.S. You know, the president has repeatedly, you know, played this game, calling it the quote unquote Wuhan virus and, you know, pointed to legitimate misconduct on the part of China that kind of allowed this virus to spread after it originated in Wuhan there. So he, you know, he does, I think when you're asking him, you know, why do you see this as an international competition, it it, it would make sense for him to point to China. But obviously, you know, him doing that in a question from Weijaz is very loaded. And and he has actually repeatedly sparred with her. And I think it, you know, something we've seen from him a lot, that these women of color who are reporters um, get the worst of it. I mean, I, I've made him angry before. And, and the worst thing he said to me is people like you cause division in the country, whereas, you know, women are told they're nasty, they're this or that. The, lang- the language is, is much more stepped up. And we've also seen the president make 
questionable racial comments. I mean, you know, April Ryan, uh, the African-American reporter, was told by him to sort of call the Black Caucus with his just assumption that he, he knew them. And even separate from this exchange with Weijia today, we had the one I um, mentioned earlier where, where President Trump kind of said, oh, I, I called up Tim Scott to talk about the situation in Georgia. And, and you know, Tim Scott's black, but he doesn't represent Georgia. So I, I, I think, you know, the president clearly has these kind of, let's say, different interactions with with people of color that just continue to stand out and be somewhat awkward. Yeah, whatever he was thinking, and we don't know what he was thinking, the optics were not great. Hunter, we'd love to keep talking to you, but we actually have a uh, genuine novelist uh, waiting to come on the show. <laughs> and for all your great hey, reporting, I don't think you've s- written any novels yet. So I No, think but to... I, th- I think one day Hunter will be the protagonist of a novel. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely he's a, a character he's a great out ca- of a Washington a great, novel. Yes. He, I mean, you, you can't come up with a better name for a, like, a great <laughs> por- Washington reporter than Hunter Hunter Walker, so he's going to clearly be a protagonist. I think of, I'd name it some, Hunter well, Runner well, well, rather listen, than Walker. Listen, guys, I may not have David's verisimilitude, but I appreciate you guys <laughs> tolerating my lo- my loquaciousness. The accent is on the first syllable, verisimilitude, <laughs> not verisimilitude. Okay, I'm get that, out get of that right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Take care, Hunter. See you guys soon. Bye. It's no secret that our world has been interrupted. A World Interrupted is a daily podcast telling stories of coronavirus and its impact on the economy. We want to cover the issues in the macro, global economics, the stock market, and our political climate. We'll also cover the micro stories, maybe the ones you don't hear as much about in the news or the media. We hope you'll listen and be a part of the journey. So subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We are now joined by David Ignatius, columnist for the Washington Post, all around Washington wise man and prolific novelist, author of the new novel, A Paladin. David, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you, Mike. Good to be with you. So uh, other than uh, sort of basic questions about how you find the time to churn out novels when you're writing uh, regular columns for The Washington Post on national security, what prompted you to want to write Paladin and uh, also tell us the origin of the name Paladin, where that comes from? So first, in terms of the theme, I had been working on a previous novel about the U.S.-Chinese battle to steal each other's secrets about how to build a quantum computer. And I became fascinated by new technology writing that book. And as I did my research, it was obvious that there were new technologies of manipulation of information coming along. The shorthand is deep fakes. But there's a whole science now of creating not fake news, but but fake events, uh, video and sound imagery that people will think is real. So I, I thought that would be really a fascinating issue to play with. How do we know what's what's true and what isn't in this new world? And then I got interested in, in a character who could carry that plot. I was reading Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance, which, uh, if folks haven't read it, is about somebody from the Rust Belt world that elected Donald Trump and the 
sense of growing up in a town that is now depopulated, all of businesses have gone away. It's just a shadow of what it was. So I thought I wanted to make my hero somebody who carried that burden. So in his case, he's from the Keysport, Pennsylvania, great steel town, now just a nothing ghost town. Uh, his name is Michael Dunn in the book. So those two basic elements, a world of super manipulation that ends up crushing Michael Dunn, ends up destroying his job at the CIA, his marriage, uh, he goes to prison for a year, plus the, the, the technology that, that did him in and how it works. Those were the th- those were the things I began with. The Paladin, turns out the Paladin were a fraternity of uh, avenging knights in uh, France of Charlemagne in, in the ninth century, sort of like the in Knights of the Round Table, where righted wrongs and did good. They were sort of social bandits, you might say. So they, they became uh, an embodiment of one of the, the themes of the novel. And I just, I liked the name. When I was growing up, there was a TV show called Have Gun, Will Travel that was starred a guy named Richard Boone, who was who called himself the Paladin. And he was a private detective. It was set back in the 1890s in San Francisco, a gold rush. Anyway, I was like the Paladin as a name. And um, I decided it was, it was the right title and theme for the book. David, these uh, so-called deep fakes are already being used, aren't they? I mean, they are out there. I think I have read about it becoming part of the dark arts of even political campaigns. But are there intelligence services that are using deep fakes? And by the way, in the novel, you, you say the technical term is generative adversarial networks. Is, is that right? Yeah. So is- deep fakes, you know, like so much else in the, in the world of the internet, really began with sex. People began concocting videos that showed famous movie and TV stars, you know, having what looked like sex with people when they hadn't, and they were crazy internet uh, rage, and that people began to crack down on it. But the technology uh, that was used essentially involves creating a, a neural network, a chain of uh, very sophisticated uh, processors, feeding it with imagery that gets we're going to do fake Mike, so that we feel, you know, thousand images of, of Mike is across his face. So every line, every shadow, every every inflection, you know, linking face and voice, is fed into the computer. And then we get a second computer neural network, which we'll we'll call detect fake Mike. And so we run the two against each other. So every time there's just a little hint of discordance, a lip that doesn't move right in sync with the words. Uh, a shadow that falls around the, around the face, detect fake Mike sees it and it's instantly corrected. And then the, the better version, and then any little uh, hint of mistake in that is corrected. And so these GANs, as they're called, generative adversarial networks, create in the end an image that is so close to reality that it's extremely difficult to detect. There are ways to detect it. Uh, our intelligence agencies have been working a lot on knowing what imagery that they get, what voices that they intercept are real, how do they know that they're real. Uh, DARPA has had a project for the last three years called uh, Media Forensics that's about how, how do you develop techniques so that we'll know that the, the, the imagery we get on our social media, whatever uh, 
channel is, is real and how do we watermark it in effect. So this, this uh, issue has been out there for a while. It's getting more and more sophisticated. In terms of actual intelligence service use of these techniques, I can't point to one. I'm told that there have been some, but I don't have a specific example. You know, it is frightening stuff. And in the novel, your hackers use it for personal profit, among other things. They create a deep fake of a video of a corporate executive owner of a company who is telling his uh, board that he has um, terminal cancer, which is then used to the hackers can short the stock and uh, and make a bundle as the stock price sinks. But we've talked about this before on the on the podcast. The there's the political threat as well. I mean, the scenario you describe of creating that fake video of the executive talking about how he's got terminal cancer. I imagine a scenario for the last days, if not the last hours of an election campaign, where a video like that pops up about one of the candidates saying something completely outrageous that could hurt that candidate's prospects in the election. And how do you defend against that? How do you address it when it gets out there and it seems so real? Well, I think that's one of the challenges that we in the news media have to be thinking about. How will we help the public know what's true and what's not during this coming campaign and every campaign in the, in the future? You remember in the French presidential election, there was information that was dumped at the last minute by the Russians, we think, about Macron. And the, the French were very smart. They pulled back. The French news media, sensing that they were being manipulated, did not report this in a way that would have turned the election. I'm told that uh, when Macron came into office, he sent a message, you know, don't ever do this again. It was a very direct, clear warning. So I think as interesting as false information that's dumped in the last days of, of a campaign through deep fakes, think, uh, Mike, for a minute about true information that surfaces. I mean, to go back to the Access Hollywood tape. So, Today, when we're so much more conscious of deep fakes and manipulation, let's imagine that that tape had come out with the sound, a lot of the sound, some imagery, and Donald Trump said, this is fake. This has, been, this has been manufactured. This didn't happen. People know how to do this. This is false. A lot of people, millions of people would have believed it. And it may be that we have to be as worried about true information not penetrating in this era of deep fakes, because people are so cynical and suspicious, as we're worried about false information being planted. That, that's why I think some way that we can really establish, and by we, I mean we independent of government, somehow we in the media, we in the technology business can identify, help people know what's true and what isn't, because they'll, they'll be manipulated in, e- in either direction, being hold off of something that is true or planted with something that isn't. It doesn't seem as if we're prepared in our media culture right now to meet that challenge. I mean, it's fascinating that the that the French media did it. I don't know if their culture is different, but boy, it's it's the Wild West here and it's so competitive. How do you suggest we kind of go about doing that? 
Well, I think we need to be in, in the business of, I used to call it when I was an editor, interrogating the facts. So seeming facts come at you and you, you have to look at them, turn them upside down, shake them, think about where they came from, think about what other facts they've been hanging out with and do that kind of, of forensics ourselves. If we're you know quick to jump on a story because it's hot uh, and you know, we've done preliminary checking. I think that's just that we're going to have to be more serious about it. And I, I have a feeling in this future where manipulation of fact is so much easier and more powerful that the value of truth will increase. People will pay a lot. I mean, suppose you're trading in financial markets. You'll pay a lot to know that your information stream isn't polluted. That what that what surfaces about corporations that are uh, in your portfolio is is accurate. You pay a lot of money for that. And mm-hmm. similarly, I think people will pay a lot of money for reliable news sources. They'll want news sources that break news, so they'll want they'll reward aggressive news sources. But they'll also, I think, pay pay more for the curation part. That these people, I know these people got it right. So you know, maybe that's a good thing. That as lying gets more sophisticated, the value of truth increases. People pay more for truth, and the truth checking technologies and skills improve. So, in the novel, your protagonist Michael Dunn is a CIA officer who's assigned to investigate this um, army of hackers in Europe that. Um, at least some of them seem to have a journalistic mission or self-proclaimed, but not really. And he gets uh, dimed out. I mean, he gets uh, discovered. The hackers go after him and his CIA handlers basically disown him and um, let him go to prison when he was doing what they asked him to do. And I, I just wonder, you know, we've had the ongoing controversy debate over the last several years about a deep state. That seems to be what the president's allies talk about a lot. And I wonder if you're scenario here and depiction of the of the agency kind of feeds into the idea of a deep state of agents and uh, officials borrowed in the U.S. government who have their own agendas. I don't want it to feed into that because I, I think the one reality of this one aspect of this novel is that the, the foot soldiers in the CIA and by extension other intelligence agencies are, are highly motivated people and sometimes are made the fall guy as Michael Dunn is. I mean, you know, Michael Dunn is, is part of this apparatus and he's manipulated by somebody at the top for very complicated reasons. I think it's wrong to see the book as implying that he was manipulated by the agency as a whole. And in the end, there is a, a machinery to uh, establish the truth and avenge the wrong that was that was done to him. So I, I'm not a deep state believer. I don't want this novel to be taken as that. More, I felt watching CIA, FBI officers who were asked to do things by political leadership, often with Office of Legal Counsel support for the legality of what they were doing, basically get hung out to dry the way Michael Dunn was, you know, they're told to do something. They're assured that the country wants them to do it. And then, pow, they end up being career-enders. And they just have to fall back on their legal insurance. 
I think that's a real problem. And I think it, you know, we, in the end, we'll, we'll get the intelligence service that we deserve if we don't protect the people who, who follow legitimate orders. I want to distinguish from legitimate ones and illegitimate ones. Well, David, of course, that's a that's an echo of the uh, detention and interrogation program, and, and I think you. Michael Dunn actually raises that he's he's very uh, wary of this job because of that. But are you suggesting that you know career agents or officers, when they are given an order to carry out uh, what we now commonly refer to as torture, that it was okay to follow orders as long as there was a uh, OLC opinion saying that it was legal? No, I mean I think. In the case of, of, of torture, those techniques, um, people should have seen them as as improper, shocking the conscience, and should have said no. But there, there are lots of examples over time of people being uh, asked to do things, told to do things that, they, in the end, I mean, you don't really want a CIA that says, no, uh, we're not going to follow this order. You know, we don't think that's a good idea just as you don't want a military that defies civilian authority. I think the torture issue is just in a, in a separate basket. The, 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 the character in the book, Michael Dunn, raises it because I think for his generation of CIA officers, this sense that, you know, you get told to do something and they say there's a legal opinion that supports it and you won't go to jail. And, here's the, here's the, and then they do it. I think that was very scarring. And that's probably good because it makes them think, if I'm asked to do something that would shock the conscience, I just shouldn't do it. Now, the uh, the hackers or Dunn's original target is this hacking group. And uh, I believe the guy he's going after is Howe, Jason Howe. Am I remembering the name correctly? Now, you know, there is a sort of uh, echo of the whole uh, WikiLeaks debate there where, you know, they portray themselves as a journalistic organization. In fact, you know, uh, according to the U.S. government, they're, they're a lot more than that or not even that. I forget how Pompeo originally described them basically as a private intelligence service. Did you um, consciously want to have people thinking of WikiLeaks when you describe these characters? And, you know, does what they ultimately are revealed to be, is that your conception of what WikiLeaks is? This is a, it's a novel and uh, right. nothing is exactly what it may look like in, in real life. It's an invented story. That said, yeah, I want people to think about the hard question of whether WikiLeaks is a journalistic organization like the Washington Post and deserves the same protections or is something different. I don't, I, I don't have an easy answer for that. I know that some of the things that WikiLeaks has been accused of doing, the Washington Post or any organization like it that I know wouldn't do. But you know, I haven't in my in my journalism come to a final judgment about that. What I like about writing fiction is you you don't have you're not writing an op-ed piece. I'm not telling you what to think about WikiLeaks. I'm asking you to think about the hard issues. So. Jason Howe, the character who's running this organization, is called Fallen Empire, who's a kind of anarchist. He sees himself as a social bandit, and he's going to take down all the fat cats and you know, make information uh, to accomplish his purposes available. I mean, he's in the business, unlike WikiLeaks, of putting out information, the sum of which is invented. It's not real. 
I'm not aware of WikiLeaks inventing any any information. But I, yeah, I think those issues are worth thinking about. It's nice to have a chance to let Jonathan, Jason Howe, my character, speak for himself and say why he wants to be a social bandit. Uh, he, in the end, decides that he's wrong. He doesn't want to do that anymore. He feels a deep remorse that he hurt people who didn't deserve it. But, you know, I, I want the reader to decide. I, I, I do enough punditry in my column telling people, you know, you should think this or that. Um, in a novel, I don't want to do that. I want to unfold the story in the complexity it exists. I love the fact that Jason Howe reads... Uh... Eric Hobsbawm's uh, Primitive Rebels, which uh, a lot of us read in college, and most of us uh, didn't become bandits, social bandits. Uh, maybe Isakoff is a social uh, bandit. Uh, the, uh, hey, David, I want to... The uh, internet uh, wasn't around when I was going to college. <laughs> I have always, uh, a big fan of your books, always been interested in your tradecraft, uh, i.e., how you actually learn about the spies tradecraft, and you're known to be one of the best sourced intel reporters in Washington. So when you're interviewing your sources for your columns, are you also picking their brains about uh, how to crack safes and, and uh, you know, put uh, surveillance technology into places and all of those kinds of things? How do you do it? How do you learn about these things? So the re reporting all goes into the same uh, receptacle, namely my brain, I try to distinguish when I'm talking to somebody, this is for my novel. This is not for journalism. This conversation is it's, it's, it's for an imaginary world. And then I often will ask people, are you comfortable with, with my listing you in the acknowledgments at the end of my novel to say that I, that I talked to you or that you read a part of the, of the book? And I've done that in this novel as, as in past ones. The, of course, out in the world, learning about things that interest me, I'll write about ones that I can I can prove that I can pin down uh, in my in my journalism in my column. But there's some things that are super complicated. I, I wouldn't know how to write a column about deep takes. As I said, I just don't know enough about how it's actually been used. But I sure know enough to be able to speculate about how it might be used and. So there are people in the intelligence community who are worried about this problem or willing to, to talk with me and say, yeah, this is, you know, here's, here's the way to think about this. Here's how, here's how you create this kind of imagery. Here's how we're thinking about ways to detect it. Here, you know, here are the, the potential dangers. Uh, so I, I obviously it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be true to say that the stuff that I learn in my journalism doesn't end up informing my fiction because it's, it's just all there in the template. Well, uh, it is a, uh, a great read. Uh, the novel is Paladin. It's out uh, today or this week, David? Last Tuesday, but, the, you know, the, the, in this world where nobody's going to a book day, <laughs> it, it's on, I know it's available online. And our listeners should uh, check it out on Kindle or however they're getting their books these days when they can't go to bookstores. But if you could put your columnist hat on for a little bit, there are two subjects in particular I think we wanted to ask you about, both very much in the news. First, um, the Michael Flynn case, uh, the Justice Department dropping the charges, the charge against him as the guy who put Michael Flynn in play with your January 12th, 2017 column reporting on his conversation with the Russian ambassador, Sergei Kislyak. What was your reaction to um, the Bar Justice Department's decision to drop the charge? Well, I was I was astonished. I, I, I wrote uh, 
a column that appeared the day after, uh, and I, I said, if he he did nothing wrong here, and essentially Justice Brown was saying he, he may have lied as he as he said he did in his plea agreement, but it wasn't a material lie, it wasn't a significant, criminally significant lie. If that if that was so, why did he work so hard to conceal it? Why did he conceal it with Vice President Pence? Why did he elect? Pence make misstatements in public. What what was it that he felt about his conversation with the Russian ambassador on the same day that President Obama finally was taking action to punish the Russians for their intervention, their covert action to subvert our elections? Why did he think that he didn't want that to come out? And, you know, there was an effort. It's now been been publicized where Hope Hicks, the Trump campaign spokesperson, was told uh, to, to deny that this was true. Others others were told that very deliberately, and Hope Hicks was, was quoted in, in testimony that she made saying that she realized later she was being instructed to mislead people about, about this. Why, why was that? And, and I think the answer is pretty simple, that given what we now know, about the dimensions of the Russian subversion campaign, what what our intelligence community first reported on January 6, 2017, what three years of investigation by the Senate Intelligence Committee, led by Republicans, confirmed was an accurate judgment about, about what the Russians were doing. Why was it okay to reassure them, as Flynn did Kislyak, that you know, we'll work this out, in effect? Don't, don't overreact to what Obama is doing, or we'll, we'll 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 take care of this. I think that, to me, is is the is the baseline issue here. I understand the criticism of the FBI in a number of areas of the Russia investigation. I think any reasonable person looking at what the FBI did, what some FBI officers did in the Carter Page uh, surveillance uh, warrant application process, should be shocked. I mean, it's incredible. That people, for whatever reason, yeah. I mean, you wrote in in that column the recent disclosures about how they prepared, how the bureau prepared to question Flynn in 2017 should trouble anyone who worries about abuse of power by federal investigators. What explain that? What in particular? Now there was the dispute between the bureau and DOJ about how to handle this new information about Flynn and what he was saying to the Russian ambassador and the vice president's public lies about it. But as I read the documents, it seemed that DOJ was saying we have a duty to alert the White House and the FBI is saying, no, we want to get to Flynn and see what he says. We don't want to involve the White House counsel or anybody else at the White House. So I, I have read some of the exhibits that were made available with the Justice Department move. I haven't read all of them, so I want to be careful and not go beyond what, what, I, what I know. I, from what I have read, it seemed to me that the, the discussions that took place prior to the questioning of, of Flynn had an edge to them that it seems troubled some people at the Justice Department, not simply because they, they had a question of whether the White House should be informed first, but for, for other reasons. As I, as I, in my initial reading, look, look at, the, at that evidence. And what I wrote and, and believe is the, the idea of the FBI, this enormous 
law enforcement apparatus being let loose on a citizen, even somebody as powerful as Mike Flynn, who's, who's just become national security advisor, without really strict limits on how they operate. You know, uh, I I grew up being worried about that kind of FBI, and I don't think I don't think you suspend those concerns just because of the current cast of characters. Just one more question on this, and I know Danny wants to ask you about your Chinese lab columns, but it has been reported that the um, John Durham investigation assigned by Attorney General Barr to look into the origins of the Russia investigation has been focusing on the disclosure to you about the Flynn phone call with Kislyak. Do you have any indication that the FBI or the Justice Department is uh, has accessed your phone records, emails, any other material that they are indeed trying to identify your source for that story as part of their investigation? Yeah, I think I'm just going to have no comment whatsoever on that. That's a question for our lawyers and, and our PR people, um, you shouldn't take that as in any way confirming because I'm not. I just, that's something I want to comment on. Fair enough. I actually have one follow-up on the Flynn thing, which is kind of more of a 30,000-foot question. And it's a complicated question with, I'm sure, a complex set of answers. But you think a lot about these things, so I'm curious uh, what your view is. And that is, like, what, what you make of these conflicting narratives raised by the Flynn case, that on the one hand, you have Barack Obama, who just said publicly in a a story that Isakoff broke, this audio tape of the phone conversation he had, that dropping the case is an assault on the rule of law and and the core values of of our democracy. And then on the other hand, so many people on the right and led by the president saying that our our system of justice has been essentially poisoned or perverted by, you know, dirty cops in the deep state and deep state conspiracies that led to an unjust prosecution of Michael Flynn. I mean, this seems to be the reality that we're living in right now. Well, I, I yeah, I think the you know, FBI and the this process of investigation had become the ultimate political uh, football, it's, it's too bad. I, I, I don't know how the FBI recovers as an institution from, from the, the, what it's going through. Right? It's going to take very good leadership. Uh, generally, Chris Ray seems to me to be fighting for the integrity, professionalism of the, of the, of the Bureau. But it, and maybe fighting for his job, <laughs> from what we can tell. Yes, I mean, he, he, his job may be at risk, but I, I've been impressed by Chris Ray's attempt to play this straight. So often, in my experience, FBI directors end up being politicians, you know, that they they feel they have to speak to the camera. Jim Comey had that kind of, you know, citizen avenger aspect to some of the statements when he spoke out about about, uh, San Bernardino uh, iPhone issue. You know, he was a very public role, thought a lot about public relations. Louis Free was obviously that way. Famously, J. Edgar Hoover thought endlessly about the public face of the FBI as public relations. Chris Ray seems to me to be um, much lower key. He's trying to protect the bureau. He's trying to keep it focused on his mission. You know, maybe he should do more public relations. I don't know, but mm-hmm. I, I find myself admiring that, and it's a welcome change. I think there's something tempting for the FBI. It's so close to politics. It's so easy to play politics. Now, Isakoff raised the uh, controversy over the 
speculation that the virus, the uh, coronavirus, may have leaked from a Chinese lab, the uh, Institute of Virology in, in Wuhan. And like the Flynn case, like so many other cases these days, this is a an investigation that seems to, to have become politicized. And the right and the left, you can see it now in the papers, it was on 60 Minutes last night, are going af- at each other over this question. You've written about it. You've taken it seriously. Not that there is, you know, any kind of definitive evidence that it came from a lab, but that it is being looked at by the intelligence community and that it is at least plausible. Talk about where you are on that issue right now. So for a long time, I thought that the origin story of COVID-19 that we initially had, that it somehow got into the population in Wuhan through this seafood market uh, in, in Wuhan where people ate all kinds of crazy stuff and they might have eaten something that either had a bat in it or had eaten a bat or, or there were all kinds of stories. But it, it basically involved this market where somehow the virus would have jumped, the bat coronavirus would have jumped species and then been ingested and infected human beings. And I, the more I looked at the, into it, I realized that there were reasons to think that that argument might not be right. That might not be the origin story. There were some anomalous details, like the fact that the first people who were infected had no connection that could be established with that market. There were some other details that began to surface in the Lancet and other scientific journals. And so I began to look again at what people like Tom Cotton had been saying. Tom Cotton was an early uh, skeptic on this. Some of his early comments were, I thought, totally inflammatory. I still think they were likening it to Chernobyl, implying that it was a deliberate release. There's no evidence whatsoever of that. And I think even Tom Cotton has, has backed off that. But the more time I spent with this story, I, I thought that reasonable people should be agnostic about whether this was an accident in nature, whether it just jumped species in nature accidentally, or whether it was an accident in a laboratory. We know that there were all kinds of bat coronaviruses that have been collected in two biological laboratories in Wuhan, one very near this market, one uh, a few kilometers away, uh, which was much higher tech, supposedly higher, higher security. And the argument that it might have been a leak from the laboratory, somebody working in the laboratory, not practicing sufficient hygiene, in some way being infected, waste that came out of the laboratory, somehow getting in the the trash or in in some other way in in dissemination. I couldn't find people who really looked carefully at this who didn't think that that was a possibility. At the same time, the more I asked, the more definitive the evidence was that this was not man-made. It was not bioengineered. That part of the crazy conspiracy theory was crazy. It's just there's, there's no evidence of that. So, you know, I ended up thinking, and, and I, I, I'd say this to your listeners, the, the right thing here, we need to know how this began. We need to know what the real origin story is. It shouldn't be politicized. It shouldn't be the left versus the right. It should be a factual forensic investigation. And the only people who can really do that make it happen are the Chinese. And they should. They should for all sorts of reasons. First, we need to know 
how this happened in part to, to create the right vaccines and part to make sure it doesn't happen again to, to understand how did, the, how, did this, how did this horrible outbreak that's crippled the world get started. The Chinese, I think, in the end, need to show that they're modern and self-confident enough to tolerate a real investigation. Their initial response to this was to do what police states do, to suppress and manipulate information. And they were seen to do that, and their own citizens are still angry about it. So I think it's in the Chinese interest, certainly in everybody else's interest, to have a real investigation that only is possible if there's international involvement and oversight. And I don't think that's that, that shouldn't be a politically difficult decision at all. Everybody should agree that's what's needed. And people should, should join together in that demand and just keep making it until China finally responds. Of course, inevitably, it has become a bit of a political football with um, some accounts suggesting the um, Trump administration is putting pressure on the intelligence community to confirm the Chinese accident theory. And um, there's been pushback on that. And so all I can say to our listeners is if as this continues and um, the debate goes on about this, the best way to keep track of what is really going on and what the truth is, is to read David's column. And if you just want a good read, um, you should check out his novel, Paladin. David, thanks for joining us. Thanks to you, uh, Mike and, and Dan, both. We've been journalistic colleagues, you know, seems like forever, but <laughs> near, near decades. Uh, you know, there's the... I guess the, just the last thing I want to say is, that in the end, the theme of this novel and the, the theme of our conversation is that serious journalism, where we take that role of, of investigation, analysis, and publishing what's true, it's just, you know, it's a lifeline. People people need it. It's the, the, the Wuhan virus story. If people let themselves be manipulated for political reasons, the damage will be lasting. So I, I want to make sure I don't I don't get you know, pulled into that. But you know I you know to be corny about it, I still think journalism is going to save us from the, some of the nightmares we're living through. Well, I'll be corny too. The truth and good journalism will set us all free. So thank you so much, okay. Amen, David. Right. We Great. really appreciate it. Thanks to Washington Post columnist and novelist David Ignatius and Yahoo News White House correspondent Hunter Walker for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.